Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today we're talking about puberty and healthy bodies and minds and all the cringy stuff that can make some kids and parents recoil. So, I am here with New York Times bestselling author and board-certified pediatrician, Dr. Kara Natterson, who's published several books on child health. I highly recommend. Um, great guides for puberty, such as the revised, you probably have it, Care and Keeping of You. And so that has a body book for younger girls and older girls and a companion book for parents and kids together. And Guy Stuff, which is the counterpart for boys in puberty, and so exciting, is a much-needed book coming out in February, February. Um, Decoding Boys, which has practical advice for parents about navigating boys through puberty in this new era, which we're going to talk a lot about today, where we need our boys to understand consent, have emotional literacy, and all of this during a particularly hard-to-read time of adolescence that's very intimidating for parents. And don't forget to stick around for listener Q&A. But first, let me welcome Kara. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. So you are a pediatrician. And so I love that the pediatrician is here to talk about something that can sometimes feel only, you know, you only go to the pediatrician for something about anatomy and physiology. And this is not just anatomy and physiology. Tell me what your perspective is on what this means to talk to your kids about puberty and growing bodies and health. So our sort of mantra in pediatrics for parents is that it is your job to keep your kids safe and healthy. And that's it, right? That's how you're going to get them from the beginning of life out your house is keep them safe and healthy. Um, And that means a lot of different things Mm -hmm. in a lot of different homes. And parents will interpret that statement differently, even for any given child from time to time, they'll swap it around. Um, When it comes to puberty, what it means to me is to keep them safe by giving them limits and structure, and we could talk about that, Mm -hmm. um, and keeping them healthy by teaching them and informing them. You know, a lot of people assume kids don't want to know. They kind of want to la-la-la their way through it. And a lot of parents don't want to know because they are having flashbacks to their own puberty, Mm -hmm. which maybe was not the highlight reel of their childhood. But um, but keeping a kid healthy is keeping a child informed and educated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I start when I do puberty education, which I used to do in the office when I was seeing patients in the office. I do a lot in schools now and you know through books that I write. So tell me about the beginning of this discussion. How early do you find both patients and parents ready to talk about this? Well, What's interesting is the kids are ready sooner than the parents Mm -hmm. are. And I think it's because kids are going through puberty sooner than their parents want to acknowledge that they're going through puberty. So the data is pretty compelling, actually. Starting in the 1940s, there were studies that looked at when kids were actually entering puberty. And the, the biggest study, the kind of landmark study, was done by a guy named Tanner in the United Kingdom. And he took pictures of kids going through puberty. Okay, this is a study that would never, never be happen done now, today. No, IRB approval. No, no way. <laughs> um, and and he chronicled the the whole path through puberty. It was it was an incredible thing that he did. He created these five stages. And actually, 
Um, it's very funny. Anyone who has a fourth or fifth or sixth grade daughter has seen their daughter stand in front of a mirror and look at what stage she's mm-hmm. in with her breast development. Those are the Tanner stages. And he really quantified that. And basically what he said was that the average girl enters puberty, and that means getting breast buds, generally speaking, not always, and we can talk about that, um, but uh, by 11, average age 11. Boys enter puberty, he said, more like 11 and a half, closer to 12. Well, things have changed. <laughs> Quite a bit. So in 1997, a woman named Marsha Herman Giddens went and did a study because all of her patients were developing way earlier than that. And her study on, I think it was 17,000 girls, uh, showed that, no, 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 puberty was happening a lot earlier. It was happening about an, a year earlier in girls. And then a woman who I actually did my pediatric training with um, named Louise Greenspan, who went on to write this amazing book called The New Puberty, Louise replicated the study in 2005 and found that puberty was starting for girls as much as two years earlier than Tanner had documented. So our kids are changing much earlier than we did, and they want to talk about it. And when they want to talk about it, do you find girls want to talk about it with with a little bit more ease than boys? Well, here's the catch with boys. So um, boy puberty begins when testosterone levels start to rise. Testosterone's made in the testicles. And so it's this little virtuous cycle where when the brain tells the testicles to start kicking into gear and making testosterone, the testicles start to grow in order to accommodate the request. It's testicular growth that is that first sign of puberty for boys. Um, the catch is most parents aren't walking around examining say, their right. boys' testicles, right. right? It's easier to see breast buds. You got it. So the girls... Some of them have language, some don't, but all of them have noticeable change. Mm-hmm. The boys, the testosterone they're making isn't impacting their body for a couple of years sometimes. So they feel it. They might see it in the shower, even though m- most don't, frankly. They're not, <laughs> you know, most, I don't want to stereotype, but many boys are not the noticing type. Um, but they, no one talks to them about it because it's sort of an invisible change. And so that um, sort of heaps on to the issue mm-hmm. of this segregation of conversation. We talk to our girls because we can see what's happening, mm-hmm. and then they start talking to us. We have no idea what's going on with our boys. They start wanting to cover up, getting private, shutting their door, not all of them, but many of them. And we go, oh, that's what they do, mm-hmm. and they don't want to talk to us. And then they shut us out, and we go along with it, and we don't have conversation with them. And so we have created a social construct that separates how we manage girl puberty and development and boy puberty and development all because of visibility. And don't you think it's also a lot of those conversations end up happening, either mom talks to daughter, dad talks to son, dad respects the fact that sons are going to do their thing, and moms have a little bit more of an understanding about what a girl is going through, of course, because they've been through it. And so it's like when your child has a similar temperament, you have an easier time kind of giving them boundaries and structure and being sensitive because you're like, you're going to be just fine if I keep this boundary. But you can't, right. if you have a kid who's different from you, you're like, will they freak out? Well, what does the silence mean, et cetera? Right. Uh, you know, having the same equipment goes yeah. a long way in terms yeah. of that conversation. But I also think the the most common line I hear from dads is, listen, no one talked to me about this and I turned out fine. Right. Therefore, I don't need to talk to my child about it and I don't need to horrify him. Um, this, that horrifying thing comes from us, the adults. That's correct. And and when I talk to the kids and I talk to a lot of kids, they don't find it horrifying at all. They find it really interesting. And I I write a lot about the the new frontier of sex education and the content that's online and, and um, in digital streaming and in television. And um, I write about the show Big Mouth, Mm -hmm. which is very uh, much an accidental sex ed program, right? And I love what they've done on Big Mouth. I'm not saying it's always appropriate. It's not for younger kids. It's (laughs) not for younger kids and it's not always appropriate, but they have taken their role as sex educators and body educators very, very seriously Mm. because they realize that boys actually do want to know. The show is written very much to boy. I mean, girls watch it, but um, it, it really represents a boy's perspective. And boys are hungry for the information. And the creators of Big Mouth are very, they're committed to good education of boys. And I think the dads could learn a lesson from this, right? I think if they realized what their boys wanted to know, they would 
be mm-hmm. jumping in on these conversations. So when you think about, that's so fun actually for dads to know to just watch Big Mouth, right. but also <laughs> that's for adult, like real teens, not for that, your nine to no, it is not a, it is It is not a nine-year-old. I mean, it's a, it's watched by many, but I would not recommend to a parent that their nine-year-old sit in front of Big Mouth and neither would the creators of Big Mouth, by the right. way. But also, you know, if you are, when you do sit in front of anything, you can you'll have a conversation. Well, that's the whole goal, right? So um, that's grabbing a teachable moment. And the reason we don't want screens to be babysitters for our kids is that if we are watching the same content and we recognize that something, anything is being um, messaged to our kids Mm -hmm. that we need to provide a little conversation around, we should jump on that conversation. You know, the best example I use here in LA, we have these buses that have completely inappropriate ads on them, right? It's just cringy, the ads, sexual or violent. I see every single bus as a teachable moment, Mm -hmm. you know, and why is that cringy and what's wrong with that image or what do you think of that image? Mm -hmm. And my kids have gotten so used to it at this point. Right. And or who benefits from that image, just getting them to think about it in a different way than just seeing these images. And then we just hope they don't see it and we're silent. That's exactly right. Hi, I'm Heather McMahon. I'm an actress, comedian, living at home with my mother. On the Absolutely Not podcast, we'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll probably prank phone call our ex-boyfriends because honestly, they were the worst. The thing that makes our podcast different is I get to hear directly from you. You can always pick up the phone and catch us on the Absolutely Not line. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a message, but of course, only if it's a nice one. Tune in to the Absolutely Not podcast, and I'll see you soon. A nice topic as well, which I think we can get into, is how these images impact our children's body image and approach to thinking about what our culture appreciates or wants to see from them. And that you can take those moments as teachable moments without over-focusing on how important they are so that they don't misunderstand that this is not about beauty. This is really just about advertisement and what you know, who's benefiting from it? And what do you think of this, guys? That's right. We have done a great job as a culture having this conversation with our girls. And it's not that our girls are immune from issues around body image, (laughs) but we do such a good job of pointing it out. We are on it. We are on it. Um, We are off it with our boys. So I do write a lot in Decoding Boys about body image and about the missed eating disorders in boys. Um, In medical school, I was taught 10% of all eating disorders are male. Mm -hmm. That is the prevailing thought now. It is far from true. Um, The real number is 25% of all eating disorders are boy. And then 50% of body dysmorphia is boy. So boys struggle with how they look and their image of themselves as much as girls do. We have um, framed body image as a thinness issue. That is a girl construct. Mm-hmm. When you talk to boys, they don't want to be thin. Right. It's a they want to be muscular, right? right? So we miss a lot of eating disorders and we miss doping steroid use for, mm-hmm. for muscle building, protein consumption for muscle building because we're looking for weight loss, not weight gain. So, you know, the whole body image thing it's, we just need to pull the lens back and include our boys in that conversation. There's a ton of pressure about what you're supposed to look like when you're male and you're transforming. So now if, uh, if you're noticing that your son is making protein shakes yeah. constantly, are they over flooding their bodies with protein? Is that something to, to check in with? That's a question. Um, you know, I think it, it, what's interesting about writing a parenting book as a pediatrician, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, I love the therapeutic lens because it's so instructive in terms of how to have conversation. The medical lens is a little bit more black and white, right? right. So there's sort of data and this is good and this is bad. And the problem with this lens is then we we get new data and we totally change our recommendation, right. which is infuriating. I think protein is a really good example. Um, we are supposed to eat food that Um, came from the earth. We are not supposed to be eating this highly processed, highly manufactured food. And we know that because our bodies don't do well with it. So the whole adding protein powder to your smoothies or eating protein bars, there's there's a place for it when you are protein deprived. Mm -hmm. But in general, the goal is actually to eat the protein, whether it's plant-based protein or it's a meat-based protein, we can, that's a whole different conversation. But, um, but so if you have a son who's suddenly scooping, you know, pea protein powder into a smoothie three times a day, 
you want to say to yourself and then to him, mm-hmm. hey, what's, what's happening, happening here, here right. right? And start the education and have the conversation. And most parents don't even know. Right. They, and they don't know where to turn and they don't know what to read or who to ask. So, yeah. So this is going to be one of the gifts of this new book is getting an opportunity to think about this in a different way. I think the other thing that's exciting about thinking about how we raise our boys in terms of talking about puberty and all of the surrounding things that basically are all all the things we think about during adolescence is that it's not just about making sure that we're considering their body image the way we're considering girls' body images, but also how are we raising boys to function in this world where we're raising girls to say, hey, right. this is my body. I This is my instrument, not object. Right. Please back off or I give you my consent or whatever it is. But in this age of consent and in this age of trying to raise really strong girls so that we don't have what we have going on today. Um, if that sentence made any sense. No, perfect. <laughs> um, thank you for understanding. Um, I I love the idea of also talking to our boys and figuring out how to raise our boys so that they can function in this world. Because right now, the way the conversation is going, we're not actually lifting boys to help them feel like they have something other than, okay, I'll just back off and not say anything. I don't want to do anything. Right. So. I I write a lot about that. I write a lot about porn and sending nudes, which I call a form of personal porn, and consent and how those things are all conflated. Um, and ultimately, where I land as a pediatrician and as a mom of two teenagers mm-hmm. is that... Right. You have a 14... I should say you have a 14-year-old yeah. boy and a 16-year-old daughter. Yes. Correct? Okay. Yes. Um, so I'm making it up the same way everyone else is, right? <laughs> That's like the dirty little secret right. is we're all winging it um, and we're doing the best we can. Yeah. But, you know, when you arm girls with language around sex and consent and you give them power to their voice, that's wonderful. Why wouldn't we do that for our boys? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we say to our boys, hey, the girls might say X and Y and Z, or other boys might say A and B and C. Have a conversation. Here's what consent looks and feels like. Here's what, you know, the the assumption is if the average boy is bigger or stronger than the average girl, then there's a power dynamic. Well, we should be shifting that notion. Mm -hmm. We should be shifting that notion to a power dynamic around language and two people having a conversation about what they both want. And then it doesn't matter what their gender is. It doesn't matter what their gender is. It doesn't matter what their sexuality is. None of it matters. It's about clear communication about needs and desires and where each person is drawing their line. We owe it to our boys to have that conversation. How can we raise them to respect others when we don't? And so there are a lot of consent programs that begin as young as kindergarten. Mm -hmm. They're wonderful. They have nothing to do with sex. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you wouldn't take someone's sweater without asking. It's it's what we call sharing. (laughs) Right, right. It's starting conversations about just your own, right, taking turns and sharing. That's right. And those are early, if we reframe them as consent, Mm -hmm. then it's easier to have the conversations with our sons that we have with our daughters. Mm -hmm. Most preschools, which is why it's, it's kind of bananas, but parents of young, young children often just, just to be sweet, will say like, give your friend a kiss and a hug or give this person a kiss. And then they get to preschool and Mm -hmm. they're told to keep their bodies to themselves and they can't do that. So I think if you're starting really young and listening, you can know, just let go of this idea that giving a hug and a kiss is the way to let your friend know that you have, you know, happy, warm feelings towards them, unless they've said, I would like you know, a kiss and a hug. Uh, that's right. I mean, uh, and by extension, as kids get older, um, there's this pressure to be polite to strangers, right? Yes. You have an adult who yeah. comes into the house and you're supposed to be super nice to a stranger, but you're supposed to never talk to strangers. Like the whole thing gets really confusing. So I think the the most important parenting advice that pediatricians have, certainly that I have, is it changes from day to day, from scenario to scenario, what the right thing is. Mm-hmm. Rules must be flexible. It doesn't mean rules shouldn't exist and structure shouldn't exist, but they must be flexible. Ultimately, um, you do you. You know, mm-hmm. If we judge each other and we try to put platforms out there and we try to be really rigid and then we decide we're doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong, um, 
no, no good's going to come of that, mm-hmm. right? And every parent who does that learns that the hard way. Um, so we're all on the same team here. We're all trying to raise safe and healthy kids. I mean, that's the job. Right? So here, here. <laughs> so I want to go a little bit more into what you were saying about sex and personal porn and um, with the personal porn of sexting. Um and actual porn. Have you seen an impact on, you know, if I think is 11 the average age of kids, of boys, boys. of boys First happening viewing. upon yeah, some it, kind of pornographic image? It depends what study you believe, but uh, between 11 and 12 uh-huh. uh, is the average age. And that doesn't mean that their parents haven't done their best. That's correct. It's just you can't control the world um, or That's someone correct. else's house or access to something that you weren't in charge of. That's correct. Um, so we know that the conversation with boys and girls needs to happen earlier because the access is earlier. Correct. What is a way to start that conversation? So it depends on the age of your child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to... I'm gonna mash together a bunch of parenting mm-hmm. concepts here and forgive me because it's going to feel big and broad in my answer. But um, the the best way to rationalize not giving your child their own digital device mm-hmm. is exactly this conversation because uh, porn is everywhere. It is very easily accessible and kids are being targeted um, because uh, like any other uh, kind of addictive substance, if you will, uh, if you can get a viewer in early on the free stuff, then you can get a viewer in for life on the paid stuff. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for an out and a reason why you don't want to give your kid a digital device that's their own, um, this is a great one. <laughs> um, but like everything else in parenting, my advice is have the conversation with your child and say, hey, um, I know you're nine and half of your friends might have an right. iPad or a phone or a this or that. Um but listen, here's why I'm not so comfortable with it. And I, I just have to parent the way I know how to parent best. So this is how I'm going to do it in my home. Um, and we can keep talking about it. And you can come to me with reasons you think you need this device. Mm-hmm. And I can answer and I will listen. And I may change my mind. Because by the way, you're allowed to take a do-over as a parent. Anytime, For sure. Okay. In both directions. For an older child, I think you need to get pretty concrete about what they're seeing and why you're worried about it. Um, You know, we don't tend to have sex education in schools before age 11. Right, when the kids have already (laughs) learned half the information. That's right. And what they're learning is very visual. And um, the the pornographers out there are very smart. Um, In order to catch more eyeballs among the adult population, they've upped the ante and they've made a lot of the content uh, more aggressive, more graphic, more violent towards women. Ultimately, what I tell parents is it's just not the sex you want your kid to have one day, right? right? I mean, that's like everyone wants their kid to be in a loving, healthy Mm -hmm. relationship one day. This is not necessarily the path you want them on to get there. Um, And especially when you're looking at aggressive, violent porn. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what happens is the viewers, the young viewers, often boys, not always, um, they are stimulated by it. And then they have terrible shame. Terrible shame. I've heard this time and again. And then... They don't even get the adult that's moment right. of saying, you know, if you feel feelings about this, that's right. That's normal. That's right. So, by the time your kid is eleven, if you haven't had this conversation, mm-hmm. it's never too late. But mm-hmm. if your kid is eleven or older, go have this conversation. Right. And by the way, none of these conversations are one and done. Right? Totally, there I'm glad you many, said that. Many. These are little moments over time. You got it. You got it. You'll know when your kid's done. When they mm-hmm. walk out of the room, they're done. <laughs> so that's it. Usually, or they shut the door. And if they're done before you even can get a word in? It's okay. You go back again. You go back You again. go back again at a moment that feels more opportune and you say, I'm, hi, I'm here again. <laughs> and because I really care about this thing right. and I just, either we're going to have this conversation now or you're going to let me know when you're ready. And if they say, oh, I'll let you know when I'm ready in a day or a week or a month, if they haven't let you know, you come back again and you do it again. But by 11... You actually really need to have explained what the landscape is Mm -hmm. online so you can explain to them what to do when they see it Mm -hmm. and how to get off, right? Um, And it's like everything else, drugs and 
alcohol, just delay. Right. <laughs> just just wait until your brain is there. Right. And so if you're telling your kids it's not a never, it's just a not now, and here's why, and always follow it with a why. So truth, brain development is such a good excuse for all of these things. All of it. Because if you get access to your pleasure centers at the wrong time. That's right. I mean, if these things have access to your pleasure centers at the wrong time, that rewires your brain in a way that That's you right. don't want. So talking to your kids about the real that, that it's not forever. It's just yeah. right now. Yeah. And also you mentioned earlier, um, I think if boys are kind of more quiet or withdraw or shut their door and you don't feel as compelled to say like, um, hi, open it. Um, what you're saying is there's a way to honor the privacy of your child, either your whatever, if they're a boy, girl, or gender non-binary, yeah. but also honor your responsibility as a parent. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. So this is a gross stereotype, but stereotypes are, you know, Easier they exist for, for developmental a, psychologists. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> they exist for a reason that they're not always right. Um, girls will often slam their door in your face, <laughs> um, but then they'll open it and they'll converse with you. And when girls shut their door, parents are much more inclined to open it mm -hmm. and to go in and to continue the conversation. When boys shut the door, parents take it as a sign that they are done and they want to be left alone. Or that they're honestly, or that they're masturbating. Oh, 100%. You know, you're not yes. as worried that you're going to walk into your daughter's room and she's going to be masturbating. I think every parent at a certain age for boys is like, I don't know what's going on in there. Let me just tell you, I do not walk in without knocking, but, right. but I'll sometimes just knock, knock, knock. And then I'm like, I'm coming in, you know, um, but yes, I don't do that with my daughter. Correct. Right. I mean, I, and probably not fair. Right. I mean, right. it's, she's totally entitled, um, but <laughs> you know, because I think, I think what gets confusing about this conversation too, is you can be very aware of the downsides of porn for kids and also very sex positive. Yes. Right. So yes. those two things are Separate not mutually exclusive. Right? right. So um, let's just be clear about that. Anyhow, so boys, when they shut their door, they do, they they shut it and we don't tend to knock and open it right away. Um, and I think that's a parenting error. Um, there are going to be times when your child, male, female, gender, non-binary, needs to be left alone. You know your kid, you'll know when to do that. Um, if you don't know when to do it, they will let you know mm -hmm, <laughs> very mm -hmm. clearly. But, um, but catch yourself and how you parent when they try to shut you out. Um, Often, not always, but often when they are shutting the door, especially boys, they are waiting for you to knock and come in. They really are. They're just, they don't know how to ask for it. And they don't know how to ask for it because they've never been socialized to do it. And and when we were all growing up, that was how we were raised, right? That was the cultural norm then. Right. So um, so yeah, the, the door, the slamming door, I always say if if boy puberty was an image, it would be a closed door. And if it was a GIF, it would be a slamming door, right? Because uh, that's what yeah. it is. So your one of your missions is to get us to open that door. Yeah. And just start the conversation. I mean, I think the, the best health advice I can give mm -hmm. you through puberty is to talk to your kid. Sure. I mean, even the World Health Organization has on its list of suggested, sec you know, I think it's relationship and sexual sexuality health or whatever, communication skills. hundred um, percent. It's in that purview. So you're a pediatrician. And so sometimes it feels like these things are separate, but they are Not a huge all. part of wellness. Not at all. I mean, the information doesn't travel into their brain by osmosis. Someone <laughs> is communicating it to them, mm -hmm. right? So it's either us or it's big mouth, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's mm -hmm. porn or it's the bus ad or, you know, it's it's what's around them or it's our friends. And, you know. Yes, actually, that's another whole thing. And let's talk a little bit about yeah. that because the research shows that parents are the primary resource for girls, but mm -hmm peers and internet are the primary resource for boys. Yeah. And that, what does that end up have, having? So in the pediatric literature, what we see bear out is that around age 12, there's this flip that happens to the brain switch where parents drop down, even for girls, to a much lower level of importance. They're still very important right. and they're important in certain circumstances. But what that is, yes. is that you have, I mean, you know all the science, but you're your limbic system, the emotional part of the brain is myelinated, it's up and running, it's fully mature, and it has ownership of your brain. You've got another decade, decade and a half before your prefrontal cortex is myelinated. Uh -huh. And that is a balance between impulsive, feel-good, risk-taking brain, that's limbic system, and 
thoughtful, consequential, smart decision brain. That's your prefrontal cortex. So I say lizard and wizard. There you go. (laughs) And so if you have a dominant limbic system, if you're sitting at the dinner table with your parents and your parents say, are you ever going to shoplift? I would never Mm -hmm. shoplift. Are you going to drink that beer? I would never drink that. And you mean it because you're answering with your prefrontal cortex. Thank you. Right? Yes. Okay. If you are with your friends then the limbic system is engaged Completely and you are true. answering and mm-hmm. suddenly you're shoplifting or suddenly you're drinking or you're doing right. whatever, you know, thing. Even being... video games, they have those studies where kids, with, right. if their parents are watching, they actually make safer choices on a video game. That's right. And this has rationalized the whole helicopter snowplow parenting thing, which is not a good thing. Yes. And right. Right. I mean, so after we talk about peer influence <laughs> and where boys are getting this information from, I think we can circle back to the the end of all of this is not the message. And therefore you should be on top of your kids and they shouldn't have autonomy. That's correct. (laughs) But I'll get you there fast. And the fast way is this. If we know that girl peer influence is important, but we're also doing a good job talking to our girls, we mitigate against the bad information that comes from peer influence because Mm -hmm. peers really don't know a lot. I mean, sometimes they know a lot and I learn a lot from kids, but by and large, we know a little bit more than they do because we've been around a bit longer. Sure. Boys, because we are not engaging them in the same way, we are not counterbalancing the peer information Mm. in the Mm -hmm. same way. So their brain is getting turned on by their peers. Their life is fun when their peers are around. And when they're with their peers, they don't shut down. Mm -hmm. They don't shut the door when their friends are in the house. They shut it when they're alone with the adults. Mm -hmm. So all of this feeds back to this sort of constant mantra of just talk to your kid. Um, you know, sort of to your wrap up point, it's, it becomes, oh gosh, I don't even know how to articulate. I mean, it just, it, the, the, the general world of peer influence versus parent influence should not then suggest to parents that parents, you are the, the dominant and most important voice in your child's life. You're not, right. you just have you to were. be, you were, <laughs> and one day you might be important again. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you just have to be the source of good, clear, honest information. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're straight with your kid, they will come to you when they're struggling, and they know you're always going to be honest with them. Mm-hmm. That um, that has cred. That's right, and that promotes safety. That's right. That's right. Because we want them to come to us when they have when they need to go to the doctor because they are going to be sexually active. That's right. Um, that's right. And so that's why that open communication is important. So that's I'm, right. I'm I think that's very different than being overprotective or um helicoptery or whatever. This is just I have to be this right. source of unconditional love and information. That's right. Even if I also am saying I'm not condoning this. Right. But I want to make sure that you're safe. And parents who think being your kid's friend is a good strategy, I'm just going to burst your bubble and say, even though there's been no study on this, I'm pretty sure even if you think you're their best friend, you're not lighting up their limbic system. <laughs> you're right, not. Right. You don't have peer influence no. in their brain the way their friends do. That's not our job. Right. And anyway, best friend parenting is associated with heavier risk taking. That's correct. So. That's correct. I think that if that study on the limbic system had been done, it would have. <laughs> That's right. It would have worked out in your favor. That's to, right. In the favor of your point. So, well, I didn't ask any of the questions that I was going to ask um, <laughs> because this is so interesting. But I'm wondering if we can go through a couple of real life anecdotes yeah. of uncomfortable conversations you might find your child either comes to you with a question that you aren't ready for. Yeah. Or you go to your child because they're 11 years old and they've never asked you about intercourse or puberty and they're, and you just listen to this podcast and you're like, wait, they already might have accidentally happened upon porn and I didn't even know they knew what intercourse was. So what are some stories or anecdotes of kids who have had good interactions with their parents or good conversations that we might be able to use as models for some opportunities for teaching and guiding? So um, let me just kind of go to the sex topic first Uh with that. Um, So uh, the most common question I get around sex is how do you have a conversation about sex? At what age? What's how Mm -hmm. much information do kids want and need? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you've covered this ground um, beautifully the answer in a nutshell is you meet them where they are. You answer the question they're, they're asking. However, um, 
what if they don't ask? That's right. <laughs> so, what if you found that they keep getting older and older right? and it's not happening? And like now they're 11 or 12 yeah. or God forbid 13 and you're listening right. to this podcast freaking out because your kid <laughs> has it right. Um, so um, here's here's my little anecdote. When my son was about seven years old, um, he was, you know, all the best conversations happen when the lights go out at night because you're not totally. making eye contact. Yes. Right? Um, and he says to me, he goes, hey, mom, um, how did I come out of your stomach? And I, I said, well, do, do you really want to know? And he said, no, what I want to know is, did you fart me out? Ah, right? He's a seven-year-old boy. And I was funny. like, no, no, sorry. <laughs> it's living if the dream. Only. Right. <laughs> and he goes, okay. That was what he wanted to know. You met him where he was. Right. So his sister's room is right next door. She's now nine and a half, almost 10. And I go into her room and I said, you know, your brother just asked me a question mm-hmm. about how did he come out? You've never asked me that question. Uh-huh. Do you want to know? And she looked at me and the, I, I should set the stage. I had just, um, I was just about to publish The Care and Keeping of You, uh-huh. which um, if if you're anyone other than my daughter, it's kind of cool. If you're my daughter, it's a nightmare. Totally. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. So this poor child. So she looks at me and she goes, uh, do I want to know? And I said, well, I think you're old enough and I actually think it's time. And I gave her two sentences really quick. And she's great. And um, my daughter was a little bit of an insomniac when she was young, had trouble falling asleep. That night she fell asleep in like 20 seconds, right? Shutting down the entire world. She did could not deal with the information I had just given That's her. That's wild. She taps on my shoulder at five in the morning and the next morning. And she says, mom, I have a question. And I said, okay. She says, I now know how I came out. How did I get in? Of course. And it was, I think that's exactly how you start conversations. It just worked out well in Uh my case that she did it by the book. Any topic around sex, you ask a question, you push your child a little. If you feel they need the information, you give them the very short summary. Let when them follow up. Yes. And they will shut you down when they're ready to shut you down. Porn. Uh, I've seen really successful conversations between kids and parents around porn. Um, it's always about safety, violence, aggression. When, you know, sex is a beautiful thing. Sex is something right. that should involve two people wanting to be there. Um, you know, these kids are watching sexual scenes that involve often many people um, or often strangulation or, or, or rape reenactment. And um, you, you actually do need to ask your child if once, the most important question you can ask is, can you tell me when you've seen it so I can help you figure out what you saw? Uh-huh. Um, and I get if you don't Great want to talk to me, but if you don't want to talk to me, let's talk about who you can talk to, right. you know, whether it's your dad or your aunt or your cousin or, you know, and give them people to go to. Um, Great suggestion, by the way, finding allies in your family or your friends where you're just like, listen, can you be a resource for my kid? Oh, you have to find the alternative to you Mm -hmm. because you guys have to agree on that person. Right. right? And it can't be their best friend. It has to be someone who's older and wise. I was that person for someone, a very close friend. And the daughter called me from a, a hotel. She was, uh, you know, in her early twenties, and she was sort of having a moment, and, and was in this very intimate situation. And didn't know what to do, and didn't know who to ask. And she's in the bathroom of this hotel room, calling me because I was her go-to person. Wow. She was never going to call her mom. You, you give your child that gift That's of wonderful. the not you person. Yeah. But um, say to them, when you see it, I'm here. We can talk about it. Um, it's not an if. Sorry. They've all seen it by the end of high school. It's the rare kid who hasn't at this point. So you just deal with that. You could you could do this across any number of things, across video games, across you know drugs and alcohol. How to bring up the subjects with your kid? Just no judgment. Right. Juuling, vaping. I mean, this is the one that impacts so many middle schoolers right now, right? Because. Yeah. One in 20 middle school kids has vaped in the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that number is one in four for high schoolers. Vaped, have, have told some random stranger, yes, I vaped right. a lot. It's not even like- They've been willing to answer that totally, question, which right? means so, that it's probably higher. That's right. So if you ask your kid, have you vaped? They're going to say no. Right. But if you say, hey, this is everywhere. And when you're ready, talk about it. I just want you to understand what nicotine is and why it's so addictive. And by the way, if you don't know these things, there are lots of really good resources out there. And I encourage you to find them. Ask your pediatrician for good resources. Read. Go look online with your child together. Right. Um, So giving them resources and for the younger kids, even just giving them a good book. 100%. That if they have questions, they can read it with you. That's right. 
if they would rather not have it yeah. in front of you, there's this book, yeah. one of which you've written. Yeah. <laughs> or a few of which. Try, try reading the book first. It's always helpful. <laughs> I have a lot of people are like, wait, you covered what? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. My um, then third grader, my Vivian was, I think, in third grade or second grade, and she wouldn't mind me telling the story. Um, second grade. She was um, asking her dad to read her a book, and it was one of the It's So Amazing or whichever one was <laughs> age appropriate, but it was Such in the series books. of books that talk about body changes and sex, in fact, intercourse in that particular one and a bunch of other things. But that conversation had not happened. My older daughter, I was in the other room. My older daughter had already read this and we had already had this conversation anyway, but she came over to me and she said, mom, the funniest thing is happening in real time, which is that dad has no idea what this book is. Vivian just asked him to read this to her for bed. She has not read it. And he is I'm like, oh my God, he's giving her the birds and the bees talk right now. And he doesn't even know what's about to happen. (laughs) And so they come out of the room and Jeff looked white, like his, all the color drained from his face. And he was like, I think I did the right thing. I don't know if I did the right thing. Why didn't you warn me? I wasn't ready to have this conversation. But my little one was like, that was really interesting. I now would like to not talk about this again for a very long time. (laughs) But it was just an unexpected whammy because he hadn't read the book. It's not funny. And one thing, one little detail on that is whenever it's right for your family, it's right for your family. Maybe share with your kids that they should not be the information source for other kids. For sure. (laughs) I had that conversation too. And I think, thank you for saying that. Everybody who's having any of these conversations, these are intimate conversations with you and your child. And it's not for you, your child to tell your other sibling who's maybe younger and not ready for the conversation. It's really, you're a safe resource. That's right. But also let's, you know, not every parent is having these conversations on the same timeline. Yeah. So I know when my older daughter and I had the conversation, she actually was like, but how does the DNA transfer? Like she was like, I, my answers were not satisfactory until what she was asking was to understand the mechanics of what was oh. going on in the particular case of her birth. Right. And um, she was oddly also in second grade at the time. And I had no, you know, I asked her what she thought it might be. And by the time we came out of that conversation, it was clear that she was ready for this information. Again, she reacted with like, not what I thought and not what I (laughs) want to talk about again for a very long time. That's disgusting. However, I had to say to her, you know, it's really important that this is between us because your friends may have no idea. In fact, many of them will have no idea about this and it might really be scary or uncomfortable to hear about it from you. So let's keep this between us. So if you know that your child doesn't have so much impulse control when it comes to sharing information with their friends, take that into account. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, it's really an important piece of it, you know, especially for the over-eager educator. Yeah, I mean, there's the the (laughs) over-eager educator child of their friends. Yes, exactly. On the bus, you know, hey. The bus is a very, if you know that you send your kids on the bus, Mm -hmm. you probably should know that they're going to hear a lot earlier than the kids who are not going on the bus. That's just a very famous time. Yes. Yes. It's a really good resource, sort of an information treasure trove. Right. And so maybe you can ask your kids what they're learning from their friends on the bus. Yes. You you will be surprised. It's endless what happens on, on the bus. Yeah. So did you find when you had patients that they were coming to you with questions about hygiene or was that something you had to bring up? So um, most kids are unaware of hygiene issues Uh when they start puberty because they're starting puberty so young, right? So they're starting puberty. Girls are going to puberty at seven, eight, nine, boys at nine, 10, 11. Um, Now, interestingly, um, body odor is, it's not technically part of puberty. That is interesting. Tell me more about this. Okay. So the adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys, Mm -hmm. they produce hormones that are in charge of making you sweat Uh and growing your hair, your pubic hair, your underarm hair. Um, That's called adrenarche Uh because it's the hormones coming from the adrenal glands. Uh Those happen around the same time as puberty, but that's not how we measure puberty. So if you have a child who has 
only grown hair under the arms and maybe mm-hmm. a little pubic hair and smells. I mean, they they, they can the body odor is impressive, right? <laughs> um, but nothing else is happening. That child may not be in puberty yet. Mm-hmm. And it gets pretty confusing mm-hmm. because that's an outward sign. You think sign, of it as right? an outward sign yeah. for sure. Um, so hygiene issues tend to come up whenever adrenarche starts. Adrenarche tends to start pretty early. I'd say uh, the vast majority of fourth and fifth graders have sweaty feet. They take their socks off. I mean, you get a group of fifth grade boys in a car and it's like, if you don't open the windows, right? Because they're all starting. And they, they think, I will go into a classroom and I will say, okay, how many of you took a shower in the last 24 hours? I'll proudly raise their hand. You know, how many of you use soap? Right. <laughs> I, it's so true. They think that the water is miraculously yes. washing them off. So in, in the world of pediatrics, a big thing that we do is we introduce the concept of washing your body with soap mm-hmm. and brushing your teeth. You know what? That basic. sounds very basic, but there are tons of kids. If you, anybody listening, if you go ask your fourth or fifth grade child, exactly how they're washing their body. Cause at that point, hopefully they are showering on their Uh, own. You're absolutely right. I bet a lot of them are not thinking about soap. And the thing is, it sounds like such a little detail, but it's not, it's actually quite huge. So a big source of bullying is physical appearance. Um, And so you are essentially sparing a child from that piece. Um, And then think about it as you get older, job interview, are you going to shower and clean up before the job right. interview? Your hygiene and the way you present yourself in life really translates into the opportunities that you get in life. These are these very basic things that yeah. we're teaching kids early, early on. So um, yes, it's a big part of pediatrics. It sounds so silly, but it's it's no, a big it's, piece. It's That's so interesting. And, it's, and it seemed off topic, but I wanted to get it in there because I think that that is a part of the discussion um, in the care of your body. Yeah. And also- and good luck with flossing. Right. I I, I feel like (laughs) flossing is another, I didn't even consider it in the hygiene category, but teeth brushing and flossing is a really important part of how you present yourself in the world and how you, you know, protect your teeth and gums and then ultimately probably your heart. Here's (laughs) a little parenting tip for Mm -hmm. flossing. Um, I learned this from my dentist, my kid's dentist. What does the trash smell like when you don't take it out for a few days? That is what it smells like in between your teeth oh, when you don't take it out with floss. That is a fantastic and disgusting right? thing done. to say. Done and done. They yeah. start flossing. Yeah. yeah. I want to go floss right now. Right, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that you came in and there are a billion other things that I want to talk to you about. And I cannot wait for this book to come out for everybody, even though I will presumably get um, early insight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But it's just such an important topic. And um, so I'm I'm thrilled that you've been out there talking about it and that you're going to have this wonderful resource for parents. Well, thank you. I love speaking with you and everything that you're doing. The information you're spreading is great. It's wonderful. Very helpful. Sometimes the parenting space is very noisy. Um, You know, I feel like uh, you have quieted it a bit. Thank you. I hope that the information is useful and not noisy so that we don't add more stress to the packed stressful brains of parents. That's right. That's the goal. Now go floss. Right. Now I'm going to go floss. (laughs) (laughs) And now for listener questions. Hi, Dr. Pressman. I am a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you. I know you recently had an episode on discipline, but I have another question. We have a two and a half year old girl and boy twins. They recently started nursery preschool and our son is having trouble settling in. He has been pushing, scratching, and occasionally biting and has been targeting one particular small girl. We talk a lot about using gentle hands, how it makes us sad when he pushes, how it's unkind, et cetera, but it doesn't seem to be having any effect. We don't want to give too much negative attention to the behavior in case that encourages him to do more, but we've been getting pressure from the nursery school to do something. I've now said that we'll take away the lion he sleeps with at nap time if we hear from his teacher that he has used unkind hands, but I don't know if that's the right thing to do. What do you think? Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. And I'm sorry to hear that your son is having a hard time with his transition into preschool. And I want to say that because he's two and a half, this is all really normal behavior. And I also want to reassure you that this isn't really something you can take on for the preschool because you're not there in the moment. So unfortunately, a lot of the work is with the preschool teachers 
to help redirect your son, to help give him things to do when it looks like he's getting triggered and aggressive and to frankly protect the little girl that he seems to be targeting. And um, in the meantime, you do want to check in with him, let him know when you've heard at the end of the day that he did keep his hands and body to himself. So you give attention to the positive versus when he comes home, letting him know that you heard about the negative because what you don't want to do is have him associate misbehavior with a nice private conversation with mom and dad. And the last thing that I just want to address is that I understand you're feeling like you have to do something because the school is asking you to, to do more. But when you take away a lion that he sleeps with at nap time, what you're taking away is something that's giving him comfort. And when you take away a security object, in particular, when you are alone as a two and a half year old, it's very common and actually really adaptive to have something that replaces the soothing comfort of being at home. And so for your son, it sounds like it's that lion that helps him sleep. So I would actually not take that away from him so that he has a comfort object. Because the one thing that we do know is that if you take away the comfort object, he's going to be even more likely to be aggressive and feel set off because he's not feeling regulated and he didn't get his sleep. So I know this is a tough time and hopefully he'll continue to transition and things will get better and better. The next question is, Hi, Dr. Aliza. I would love to hear an episode on handling public meltdowns. I find that I'm overly concerned with what others think of me as a parent, feeling shame when my children get upset in public. For example, my two-year-old has frequent meltdowns on public transportation. My five-year-old loses it if she can't get a seat on the bus. What can we do in those situations? Well, I don't think you're alone in feeling that shame about being some kind of failing parent if your child is having a public meltdown. So um, I think you'd find a lot of empathetic ears. That said, one thing I try to remind myself of, and, and this is something that I talk to clients about all the time, is what is my intention in this moment with my child? So if you find yourself on public transportation with a melting down child, what you can remind yourself is your intention is to help your child regulate and to help your child learn how to be in a public setting, be disappointed by not getting a seat and still function. <laughs> and so if that's your intention, you want to focus on what your child needs in that moment to get better at self-regulating and to have the experience of the discomfort that they can get used to and tools to manage that discomfort. What you aren't intending to do is please the strangers on the bus. Now, of course, you want to be polite. And so it is understandable that you don't want to ruin their travel time because there's a melting down kid. But unfortunately, when you focus on what the people around you are experiencing or judging in your parenting, you can't help your kids regulate and they will start to see that when they tantrum, you're so concerned about how the people on the bus are going to perceive your parenting that you might do things to get them to be quiet that aren't helping them learn how to self-regulate. For example, finding the seat or, you know, giving up your seat or, you know, giving something to them to quiet them down instead of teaching them how to calm down through you know, something soothing or you're, you know, giving them a lovey for the little two-year-old or just letting them experience distress and discomfort, knowing that your body is available as a source of support. So again, if you just take a beat and think about your intention, I really want to help guide my children to be able to manage the bus without being disruptive long-term. You might have to let them be disruptive and not worry about what other people think short-term. It will get much easier when you aren't taking time to worry about those other people's impressions of you and your kids won't pick up on that and try to take advantage of that moment and your vulnerability. And again, I understand it and every parent does. Just remember that everybody was either a child or both a parent and a child at some point. And so these things are totally understandable. And most likely what people are thinking is, boy, I'm glad that's not me right now. 
Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. And please keep sending your direct messages on at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. Thank you and have a great week.